Good morning. God is good. It is so good to be with you guys this morning. Merry Christmas. It's this week. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I know, I know this is a hectic weekend. I, I don't know how many of you are still, uh, still in the throes of Christmas shopping. Uh, we've, we've, we've finished it out, but we ventured out into the world on Saturday for a few moments, and I regretted it immediately, immediately regretted it. Uh, so if that's you, I want you to know that I am praying for your soul over the next two days. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, I know this is a, a busy time, and well, listen, we're having church in two days, so <laughs> I'm glad you guys chose to be here. It's such a gift to be together and worship together. Um, uh, we are kind of rolling up, or kind of kind of rolling down uh, our, our Christmas series. We we took some time this December to really focus in on Advent and to take a week and a week and talk about each, each aspect of the Advent season. Uh, and so I am I'm just being honest with you guys. I'm stoked for this particular sermon. This is one I've been looking forward to for a while. The, we are in uh, the, the fourth week of Advent, the fourth Advent candle, which is the love candle. And we're going to be talking about um, God's love in action today. We've been saying this all month as we go through Advent, but the, the truth of Advent is this. God is a promise maker and God is a promise keeper. That's what it comes down to. And so the first week, if you weren't here, I'm just going to catch this up real quick. The first week, if you weren't here, we talked about the hope candle. And that's this idea that, that we all know in our hearts on some level that sin has broken the world, that there is a curse on this creation, and that that has created hopelessness. But praise be to God that God gives us hope in Jesus. We saw in Genesis 3 that even in the moment when sin entered the world, when the curse was distorting God's good design, God was already looking forward and calling out His design for restoration and redemption. God has breathed hope into this world from the moment sin broke it. And we know on the other side of the cross is the New Testament church that Jesus Christ is our hope. He is our living hope, that he came to this earth, and he lived the perfect life, and he died the necessary death, and he rose again in the power of the Spirit, and he ascended unto heaven, and there is a day when he will return and take us with him. And that promise is as good as kept, which is what we talked about the second week. We talked about this idea of faith, knowing that God is a promise keeper and a, pro a promise maker and a promise keeper, knowing that God's promise is as good as kept and his word is as good as true, we are invited as his creation to walk forward in faith, to hear his promises and, and take them as true. And we talked about the, the generations of believers that have come before us Literally, literally, for, I mean, for countless generations, for thousands of years, God has invited his creation to accept his word on faith. And we saw in the story of Abraham in Genesis 15 what it looks like to accept God's word as as good as true and to walk forward in faith. And we saw how in God's economy, faith is counted to us as righteousness, which is pretty amazing because if we're all honest and a little self-reflective, we're not terribly righteous when left to ourselves. And yet God gives us the opportunity to walk forward in faith, and every single one of us, 
Every single one of us, regardless of where we are in our relationship with Christ and our journey, we have an invitation to walk forward in faith, to take a step in repentance and faith, believing that God will keep the promises He's made. In our third week, we talked about joy. We talked about how that life of faith, when we take God at His Word and we walk forward in faith, and that becomes a foundation for us, it creates joy. Faith in God's true promises creates in us joy and worship, right? And we even said, to an extent, the the, the amount of true, deep, like abiding joy that exists in us becomes a litmus test to the health of our faith. When joyous worship is lacking in our lives and our hearts, we should step back and look where we are lacking in faith with our promise-keeping God. And today, today we're talking about love. Today's the day that we remember that God's promises are always lived out in real, tangible action. This is so important. We, 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 this was in the Advent reading that we did, but, but God's love is not distant. It is not abstract. God's promises are kept in this real world where you and I live. His love looks like something. It takes form. It actually changes and engages the world around us. God's promises are kept by his love expressed in action. To that extent, we're going to talk about today, we're going to be in John 13, if you guys want to turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles in the end of each row. If you just give kind of a hairy eyeball to someone on the end of the row, they will pass you a Bible eventually. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we'd love for you to snag one of those, or even better yet, talk to one of the elders. We'd love to get you one that's a little nicer than the the pew Bibles, but we just really believe in the importance of access to God's Word, and so we would invite you to turn there. While you're turning, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll dig into the text. Spirit, we need you this morning. I mean, just we, we just we just do. We've got to be honest, God, and say that this is the time of year where it's, it's so beautiful. It's such a privilege to have all these cultural markers that remind us of your goodness and your love for us. But this is also just a time of year that is busy, and it is loaded with history and tradition and expectation. And if we're honest, many of us work our way through December on some level of semi-anxious autopilot where we are working through the, the weightiness of balancing relationships and expectations and hurts and broken and lost people and lost relationships, while at the same time working through the joy of traditions and fond memories and, and just pleasantries that happen in this season. God, we pray that this morning specifically, you would cut through that stuff. And that for a few minutes, we would be present with just us and you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our interpreter today, that you would illuminate your word, that you would speak truth to us in a way that our hearts need, and that we would leave here today having spent our morning with you. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So our text today is from John 13, so starting 
In the first verse, the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to John, we hear this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, I know right off the bat, some of you are going, uh, Pastor, I think this is more an Easter text than a Christmas text. Uh, and on some level, you're right, but, but it, it, it'll wrap around. I, I, pr- I promise. I promise it'll make sense. Here's what we're going to do today. I, I, want, I want to pick apart this story. There, there's several just kind of cultural, historical barriers that, that, that make some of the, just the plain meaning of this text a little just kind of uh, hard to see. And so I want to walk back through this story and maybe explain some of those cultural pieces so that we're kind of on the same page about what's going on here. And when we, when we do that, I think John's overarching theological theme for this whole book is just going to become really evident. And I think we're going to be able to kind of hear and see a challenge from God to us today. And I think that's going to be really fruitful. That's going to lead us back to some of Jesus' teaching earlier in John, and we'll end out our time with Paul and Romans. Sound good? Good. I ask that every week, like, like I'm going to do anything different, right? <laughs> if you all collectively were like, no, that sounds terrible, I'd still get, I don't know, deal with it. <laughs> You're all going to do that to me some Sunday, and I'm going to regret making this joke. Anyway, um, so... <laughs> We're in the Gospel of John. John is the fourth of the Gospels. The the Gospels are the four books that open the New Testament, right? Four different stories that tell about the life of Jesus. And it's important to note that there are four different books that tell the life of Jesus. And the reason is because this, each one of them tells the same story 
the person, the work, the life, the message of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, like all those things are proclaimed in each gospel, but each one is contextualized slightly different to a different audience. So you see Mark, the first gospel written, is the gospel to the persecuted church. It's the gospel to the church experiencing immense suffering. And then sometime after Mark hits the scene, we get Matthew and Luke. And Matthew is really the gospel contextualized to the Jewish believers and the nation of Israel. And Luke is the gospel contextualized to the marginalized and unseen people. John is the last gospel penned. It's the last one in the order. It was written the the latest. All three of the other gospels were already in wide circulation when John entered the scene. And John is the most unique of the gospels. It's the most theological of the gospels. And the reason is because John is the gospel to the church. John is written later on when the church has become more established, and John is pretty confident in his writing. By the way, John uh, ended out his life pastoring in Ephesus uh, until he was uh, basically marooned on an island and left to die. But, but he spent the later part of his ministry pastoring in the church in Ephesus, which is when probably most of this book was penned. And what's important to note is this. We've talked about this several times in this context, but the early church was pretty convinced that Jesus would be back like any day now. And so the early church really did operate on this. We have no clue. He might come back tomorrow. Uh, and, And they didn't do a lot of future planning because they're like, look, we don't know when he's coming back. We got to tell as many people as quickly as possible. And when the apostles started to die off uh, from, from being martyred, the church started to step back and go, we should probably actually write some of this down. Uh, we, we should probably have more than just eyewitnesses. And as the church began to sit and go, man, what does it look like for us to faithfully minister, but also await the return of our Savior that we have no idea when it will be? They started to form their theology. And so you have John, the longest living of the apostles and the latest written gospel. And essentially what he's trying to do is write a book that helps the average Christian contextualize their experience of the Christian church to the person and work of Jesus. And so he writes this book for people who are second and third generation Christians who weren't alive when Jesus walked the earth and did his ministry. And he's saying, listen, you can trust this gospel message. You can believe it. This stuff you hear preached on Sunday, this thing you go and you experience, this is rooted in reality. Jesus is real and he is sufficient and he is coming back. You can rest in that belief. That is where where John is going. And to that end, because he's much more concerned with the theology of the church's experience of Christ, he has basically no concern with the chronology of events. And he tells the story in ways that are theologically convenient, which is super confusing. If you go, for us as modern readers, because we're not used to this style of writing, like it's much closer to the movie Memento than it is to like an actual biography of someone. Like the five people in the room who have seen that movie are like, oh, okay. <laughs> But John skips around all over the story, all over the timeline to make his theological points, except for the last little bit of Jesus' life. And when I say the last little bit, Jesus, or John puts more emphasis on the last day of Jesus' life than any of the other gospel writers. 
about half his book goes to the last day of Jesus' life. And even the last few hours before his betrayal gets so much thought and energy in John that the other gospel writers give like a sentence to. And that's the part of the story we're stepping into. We're stepping into the night of Jesus' betrayal before he has his last meal with his best friends. They're in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They've traveled cross-country to be here. They're camping out outside the city, and during the day, they're going back and forth between their camp outside the city and inside the city where he's visiting the temple and the market and preaching and engaging people. Our story picks up when they go into the city to have a meal. They've wandered into the city, they've gone to this house, not the place where they're staying, but a place where a host has prepared a space for them, which by the way was normative. If you lived in Jerusalem and you had any semblance of wealth or financial stability, you just knew that your house was going to be full of strangers for all of Passover because that's what you did. And so Jesus, an established known rabbi, is given a nice room and a nice house to share the Passover meal with his disciples. And so they make their way in, they go to this house, they go up what we call, right, the upper room, the meal's prepared for them. And our story tonight is about this weird interaction where before they eat, Jesus gets up from the table and he goes and takes off his tunic and puts an apron on and washes his disciples' feet. It's just kind of a weird story. And that's basically all that happens. That's the whole story. They, camp into, they, they, they march into town. They go to the house of the person who's hosting them. They go to eat the meal. And Jesus gets up after they've already sat down, puts on an apron, washes their feet, puts his clothes back on, and sits back at the table. And, and, and some of you, like if you've spent time in church, we know, right, there's some cultural weightiness to this, and we're going to pick that apart. But ultimately, I think it's really important to note that not a lot happens. This is a really quick little story that would just be, it would just be easy to miss. But I want to point out a couple of these historical and cultural weighty things that just give us kind of the image of what's going on here. So the first thing you need to remember is this. They don't eat feasts the way we eat feasts, right? They don't have big, huge dining room tables with tons of chairs. Their dining room tables are shorter than our coffee tables, and they would be surrounded by pillows. And when you go to eat, everyone would lay down on their side with their legs kind of splayed out around them, right? It was this weird kind of scene, and you'd lay on your left side and use your right hand to pick up the food and put it in your mouth. That is the scene here. They've arrived at this house with this little bitty table, and they all kind of splay out on the pillows, and they're getting ready to eat. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, who would be the the honored guest of the feast at the head of the table, the rabbi, the teacher, their Lord, gets up, takes off his clothes, strips down, puts on an apron, and begins washing their feet. Now, foot washing is a thing in this culture. It's a thing that's pretty important, and it's pretty important for a really practical reason. Um, Pretty much no one owns closed-toed shoes at this point, right? I've got a picture here, I think, of a sandal. If you were lucky enough to own shoes, they looked like this, just very open, like leather sole with some thong things that you could wrap around your, your ankle or your foot. There's not much going on. If you even own shoes, And we have no reason, on a side note, to believe that Jesus or his uh, followers were wealthy enough to own shoes. 
That's a whole different discussion, but if you did, that was the best you had. So combine that with the fact that the vast majority of roads are not paved, right? Wherever you walk, that's what ends up on your feet at the end of the day. Now let's talk about that for a second, because that's where this gets kind of gross, but important to talk about. A place like Jerusalem had almost exclusively paved streets, right? So it wasn't as the place where they were camping outside town almost certainly didn't. But inside Jerusalem, there's paved streets. It's still a little clean. I don't know how many of you would walk around barefoot like downtown St. Louis, but, but you know, they're in the city. The streets are paved. It's not necessarily mud, but there are two things going against their sanitation at this point. The first one is a little thing called livestock. Uh, I don't know how much time you guys have spent uh, around farm animals, but they pretty much do their business where and when they please. Uh, and if you have a big old city with paved streets and there's donkeys and cows and chickens and goats all around, uh, you can guarantee there's other stuff all around as well. Add into that the fact that Jerusalem uh, had open sewage. They didn't have enclosed sewer lines. They had essentially troughs uh, kind of built into the side of their streets. And so when you got a chamber pot to empty out, you dump it out in the street. And it makes its way down the streets, down to the open water. So there is open sewage flowing down the streets. There, there are places around the world today where that still is very much the case. You walk around on paved streets and there are open sewer lines draining down the side of the street. Um, but that's the deal in Jerusalem. So you take a walk from your camp into Jerusalem, into this house. Uh, your feet are gross. They're, they're covered in filth. Tons of filth. So foot washing is actually really important because you're walking into someone else's house for dinner and you all lay down on the ground with your feet splayed out behind you. Uh, it can become distracting how odorous it might be, right? And so if you go into a house from walking around on the streets or walking around all day, someone needs to wash the feet. Now, for whatever reason, in Jewish culture, foot washing was considered an extremely lowly task. So much so that in Jewish law in Jesus' day, it was illegal for a faithful practicing Jew to force a Jewish slave to wash feet. That was too undignified even for a slave. They had to make their Gentile slaves or their kids wash the feet, which that's a whole different thing about how they valued kids. But you get what I'm saying. It's a lowly thing. It's a thing that the vast majority of people in this culture at this time would just pure and simple be too proud to do. There's not a lot of analogs in that for our society, but, but I mean, you, you think of, right, like some maybe sanitation workers who got to show up after the music festival and scrub out the Johnny on the spots, right? That's honest work. There's nothing wrong with that, but not many of us would volunteer for that work. In fact, most of us on some level would probably be too proud to take that job unless we really needed the money, right? But that's what's going on here. It's the sanitation work of the day, and it is too lowly, even for the disciples, right? These guys who are fishermen, who spend their day uh, gutting fish and out on the seas, they, they are above this kind of work. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus has no such scruples. I love that. I think right off the bat, that is the most powerful truth you'll hear in this story. This task is not below Jesus. 
our Lord, our Savior, our King, our Messiah, our God, our Creator, our Sustainer. He does not see it as below him. He takes on the task eagerly. Now, we don't know why there wasn't someone there to wash everyone's feet. The reality is there almost certainly was. In a context like this, a well-known rabbi coming to visit your house, the, the, the kind of breach of etiquette required for there to be no one on hand to wash the feet is pretty intense. In fact, what's implied by the story is that Jesus jumped up and chose to do the work before the servant got there. I love that. It's not even that like he had to. It's not like they were all sitting around going, why is no one washing our feet? It's that Jesus desired to do this work for his friends. So they're all sitting there, they're splayed out, and Jesus gets back up from the table. And he goes, and he takes off his robe, and he puts on an apron. By the way, the literal uniform of a slave in that culture. He puts on his apron, and he bends down, and begins to wash their feet in a basin, and wipe off their feet with his apron. And I want you to picture that. I want you to put yourself in that space. There you are, splayed out on your side, with your bare feet behind you. And Jesus is dipping your feet in a basin and scrubbing the manure and the sludge and the filth off onto his own clothes while he cleans your feet. It's a humbling image, right? Hard to take in for us. And we don't even have the same social stigma on this act that his disciples did. They have no clue what to do with this. Peter's response is essentially stuttering, right? Are, 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 are you washing my feet? That's basically how he responds. He has no idea what to do with this. None of them have any idea what to do with this. And I love this. Let me reread these first couple of verses. I want you to hear this. Because Jesus chooses to do this, and he chooses to do it for a very specific reason. I don't know if you caught this when we read it, but the beginning of this story has just this really extended introduction, right? It's making sure you really know where Jesus' head is when he makes this decision, and we would be remiss if we skipped over this. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. So during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and read this in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. See, Jesus is so locked in to his identity, so locked in to who he is and what God is doing, that the lowliness of this task, the humiliation of this task, is not even on his radar. I want you to hear that. You know, the author of Hebrews, we've read this a couple times this month, said, for the joy set before him Christ endured the cross, that he scorned the humiliation. For the joy set before him, Jesus was so secure, so secure in his identity 
and God's trustworthiness, that his love began to pour out in tangible, humble action. That is the truth of this story. Jesus is so locked in on who he is and what God's doing and God's faithfulness to accomplish what he's set out that his faith and his joyful worship begins to overflow in loving action. And he begins to humbly love and serve his friends. I love this. They have no idea what to do with it. Peter is stuttering. Ah, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus says, look, man, you gotta let me do it. Just let me do it. And I love this interaction because on, on kind of a first reading, Jesus and Peter's interaction seems kind of harsh, right? Peter has no clue why he's doing this. This is really weird. It's really uncomfortable for him. And Jesus just goes, look, you don't understand, but just let me do it. And Peter's like, no, never. This is so inappropriate. You are my master, my teacher, my Messiah. You, will, you should never wash my feet. And Jesus' response seems kind of harsh, right? Look, let me wash your feet or you can't be with me. Let me do it. You have no part in me if I don't do this. That seems pretty harsh. <laughs> and then Peter, like 180, is like, oh, shoot. Well, no, no, yeah. Then like, wash away. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Just, just the feet. Just the feet. It's a weird interaction. But I want you to hear this. See, Jesus is in a different headspace than his disciples right now. They're hyped up on the holiday. They're in Jerusalem with their rabbi, who they have found out and who is proclaiming to the world that he is the Messiah. They are in the hotbed of Jewish culture, and they are ready for the revolution to come. They are excited and energized. They're here to celebrate. And their rabbi begins doing this weird, awkward thing. Because they're thinking about the party, the energy, the Messiah. He is thinking about the cross and the tomb and the resurrection. And so, Jesus says, you don't know what I'm doing right now. You don't understand it. Let me do it. You'll understand later. Because here's the thing. Jesus' foot washing here has nothing to do with foot washing. It has everything to do with heart washing. Jesus' humble action here is teaching his disciples what salvation is. And so he looks at them and he says, look, you have to let me serve you. I know it's an indignity. I know it's not right. I know I shouldn't be doing it. But I want to and I am. And if you want to be a part of this kingdom, you have to let me. Think about that for a moment. A rabbi, much less the Messiah, should never have to stoop down to wash his followers' feet. And God himself should never have to stoop down and die for his creation. There's no reason. It's wildly inappropriate. The God of the universe entering into the muck and the mire of our cursed and broken world to die for us is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. 
I've used this analogy a couple times, but I want us to think about this. It is, it is tantamount, it is to the level of inappropriateness of, of, of you choosing to lay down your life for a group of amoebas. It's so inappropriate, wildly inappropriate. It should not happen that way. Human beings, us, this creation, if we're honest, we're not worth the price of the life of Jesus. And yet, and yet, God loves us that much. This is the love of our Jesus that he stoops down into this broken and cursed and mucky and dying world. That he, that he joys to get up from the table and put on the uniform of a slave and wash his disciples' feet. Scandalous. Inappropriate. But he joys to do it. And you, you must allow him You must say yes and allow the God of the universe to stoop down and serve you. How crazy. How ludicrous. How inappropriate. And yet, that's the invitation we're given. Jesus says in uh, John 3, when he's meeting with uh, some religious leaders, This is the most famous verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. For God so loved the world. Beloved, this is the message of the gospel. Your God loves you like that. That kind of wild, audacious love. That kind of inappropriate, pushing the boundaries love. That kind of love that stoops down and serves when they should not stoop down and serve. That kind of love that looks at you and looks at me and says, oh, This is worth it. My goodness. What a God we serve. You and I both know that given the opportunity, we would not make the same choice. That love does not exist within me. It exists within Him. He loves us like that. His love is not distant. It's not abstract not far from us. It is real and tangible. You feel it. You experience it. You must say yes to it. And there's no other way. There's no other way. We know that. We can't fix this ourselves. We can't can't somehow live enough of a life that the indignity and the scandal doesn't have to happen. No, we are ruined by the curse. Sin has broken the human heart. It has broken this creation. There's no restoring it from our power. 
No, if there's going to be restoration, it's going to be because the God of the universe stood up from the table and took off his tunic and put on the apron and stooped down and did the work himself. And he did. Come on. Beloved, the love of our God is real, tangible action for you and for me. And that invitation exists. That exists for you and for me. He sat with Peter and he gave him an invitation. You will never wash my feet. This is not how it should be. I know. You don't understand it. But you got to let me do it. This is the invitation that exists for every single one of us. Your God your creator, your Lord, your king, your sustainer. The God who literally tells your heart to beat, who tells your atoms to stay connected together, who who guides the orbit of planets, who moves subatomic particles and neutron stars. The God of the universe stoops before you and says, you must allow me to serve you. There is no other way. You can have no part of me if I do not serve you. So allow me. That invitation is there for you. If you are in this room and you have not received that service, that humble, loving service, I want to invite you today to reflect on that. You serve a God who loves you with a love that is so ferocious, I cannot explain it. My words fall short of the love of our God. Love is such a cheap word to use. You know, they say, they say that a culture, you, you can tell how much a culture values a concept by how many synonyms they give for that concept. That lets you know how much a Western folk love the idea of love. Because I can say honestly that I love my daughter and I love pizza. And that shouldn't mean the same thing. <laughs> Some of you are like, eh, I know you say it, but it might mean the same thing. <laughs> it doesn't. Shows you how much we value that concept, right? That we use it that broadly. It almost makes the meaning of it lose its power, right? In our culture, you have to use context and nuance to figure out what kind of love a person is talking about. It makes it so hard to talk about the love of our God because there is no word in our language for his love. There is no word in the other languages for his love. You get into Greek, right? They have these beautiful words for love that express different pieces. They all fall short. The love of our God is insane. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's free. It is for you. And you can receive it. But you have to receive it. You have to allow him the indignity of serving and loving even you. And if you're here today and you have done that, and I'm speaking of this and you go, man, I know it's crazy. I don't know why he loves me. I don't love me that much. There's an invitation for you as well. Because look how Jesus ended out that passage. A servant is not greater than his master. As I have done, so you get to do. 
Beloved, love looks like something. Jesus showed his love for you and for me through real action, real humiliating action, humble, sacrificial, other-centered action. And you, beloved of Jesus, recipients of this insane, grand love, you are invited into the same experience. There are people around you right now, right now, who are dying and flailing in the curse of this broken world. The injustices and the sins and the wrongs and the curses and illness and disaster and those things are coming together and they are drowning that person. And Jesus has put you in their orbit. And he has put you in their life to love and serve with the kind of radical, self-effacing, indignity love that he gave to you. You get to do that. You get to lower yourself and stoop down and love others like you were loved. Come on. So, when we talk about Christmas, when we talk about Advent, the expectation of our coming Lord, in just a couple days, we're going to sit in the same room and we're going to talk about the Christ candle and we're going to talk about Christ entering the world and the incarnation and the gift that it was, but never forget that the gift of the incarnation was the undignified suffering sacrifice of our Jesus. That the God of the universe became a helpless baby. That's the way Jesus loves us. And that's the way we are invited to love those around us. Giving of ourselves. Putting others above ourselves. Putting the benefit and the love and the service and the alleviation of suffering for others above ourselves. We are invited into that because we've received that. So let me do this. I'm going to invite the band to come back up because in just a minute, I'm going to open up some space for us to pray and talk to Jesus about what he's been telling us this morning. But I want to end our time with this passage from Romans. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this passage and I'm just going to give some space for us to pray. We've got some prayer counselors, Alexis and Jim. They're going to be on either side of the room. If you guys want to stand up so people can see who you are. They're going to be on either side of the room. If you need someone to pray with you, come grab one of them or come grab me or one of the elders. We'd love to pray with you today. I want to encourage you to do this. Find some space in this room to be alone with Jesus. And if you can do that sitting in your seat, that's cool. That's not like my jam. Like if you need to go get in the corner of the room and get on your knees, if you need to have someone pray over you and help you formulate words, do what you need to do. Find some space for you to be with Jesus. Reflect on his love for you. Reflect on the invitation he's given you. Reflect on the posture you bear toward him. Are you open to receiving the love of our Jesus? And man, do we give love like it was given to us? Ask God to put names and faces in your heart 
the people that he is calling you to love. Because that's how they get to know him. It's how he makes himself known. Take some space to do that. And after we're done praying, I'll, I'll end out our time and we'll spend some time in worship. But hear this word from Romans and then do what you need to do with Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope again. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, yes, beloved, even we, have received reconciliation. Take a few moments and be with Jesus and do the work you need to do. And then we'll continue on in our time.